Welcome to John's Comic Corner. This is John. Um, I think this is the first time I've called it John's Comic Corner. I usually just call it Comic Corner. I don't want to take credit for it. Um, so welcome to the Comics Corner. Um, our special guest today is Mr. The, the brilliant writer, the amazing friend, the, the sometimes infuriating but always supportive and wonderful boss, Mr. Matthew Klein. Snaps to you, Matthew. Snaps, snaps, snaps. Hello, I'm so excited to be on John's Comic Corner. Let's be very clear. I am always one to try and give you as much credit as possible because you deserve it and then some. Uh, we're going to have a conversation about the infuriating comment though, at some point. Not because I'm mad about it, not even because I disagree about it. I would just like to know exactly in what ways I'm an infuriating boss and how I can replicate that on occasion when I mean to rather than when it's unintentional. Um, but that being said, I'm really excited to be on here with you because we have a lot of really great ground and some great stories to cover today. We do. We do. So this is um, Matthew and I recommended books to each other, um, and they were both things that we had read before. Although, actually, I think I'd read you. I think I had read your selection a lot more than you had read my selection Yes, I, you and I are both very big fans of the one that I recommended. Um, and then the one that you recommended, I read a couple issues of, but I hadn't really gotten through a full, full story arc. And now I got through two full story arcs of it, and I'm excited to talk about it. They're both of the DC family, though, but a very different points in time in DC Comics, which I'm excited for us to discuss a little bit about today as well, because context is everything. Yes, and I, but I do feel like they belong in the same family. They, they, I think they're mm -hmm. thematically similar. They're sort of like pairing, you know, a wonderful Merlot with a really good, you know, steak um, or steak-like substance for our vegan and vegetarian listeners. Uh, for the vegan and vegetarian listeners, uh, I had a beautiful pork chop for Babo last night and again this morning uh, for lunch, so... Uh, I, I support you. I am not one of you. Uh, <laughs> um, that's going to lead to a whole other conversation if I go down that road. So I'm not going to go down that road. Now, I will say this. I think you might have the newer editions of our first book, which is Gotham Central. By Gotham Central. The amazingly brilliant writers, Ed Brubaker and Greg Recca, with art by Michael Lark. Um, so I think I have the first printings of these. You do, and I yes. I think that's the first, I think we read the first three, but you have the new printings, which I think is the first two, because I'm not sure how they broke it up in the new printings. So my, uh, my volumes, uh, yes, are later printings, um, because the, early, the first printing of the graphic novel series, this ran about, I want to say 37 issues, I think. Um, and a couple of the one-offs, and the, the tie-ins at the very end of it, I believe, to a big event that was going on in DC Comics called Infinite Crisis um, were collected 
um, initially as part of the trade paperback series. Later on, when they went to a new printing, I want to say it was around 2014, 2013, um, they, they gave bigger, the, the collections went from being like five issues big to 10 issues in one book. And they reprinted everything in chronological order at that point. So mine are of the later ones. I actually have the hardcover editions uh, signed by writer Greg Rucka. Um, at a signing back when John and I worked at Forbidden Planet, a wonderful comic book store in uh, New York City. John is showing me his inscription as well. We should compare inscriptions. Um, but also, they are the entire series is available on the DC Infinite app, uh, which is another place where I was taking a read. And I made it through the first uh, 13 issues for our reread, which is um, the first main story arc, the second main story arc, a wonderful one-off issue uh, about a woman named Stacy who turns on the bat signal for the GCPD, and the beginning of the soft targets uh, story arc, which at some day we should definitely talk about if we don't get to it today. So now, yes, I now I know that my book does not have that um, that Stacy single issue. Um, and the other one that I know that I was missing, which I ended up buying in single issue format was the Huntress, where Huntress shows up and helps one of, of the cars. Of course, because um, if it's about Helena Bertinelli, John Petrie is gonna make sure he has it. And here's my hot take that's gonna infuriate a bunch of people, including Phil Jimenez. Helena Bertinelli is a much better Huntress than Helena Wayne. Gonna just put that out there, say it, and you can at me, tweet me. It's fine. I only check my Twitter where, where once a month. Where can they do that? Uh, was it John Petrie? Uh, is it just John at Petrie John Wright. Petrie? John Petrie Wright on Twitter. Yeah. Send send your uh, send your uh, disagreements over to him. As he is, who which character which Golden Girl is on your coffee cup today? While we were oh Dorothy's Bornack is on my coffee cup today. Thank you, thank you. Because it's Dorothy, but it's I do Dorothy. have my Golden Girls coasters. So she's, Dorothy is resting on Rose. So, so John is currently representing two of his most uh, passionate fandoms. He's wearing his Wonder Woman t-shirt. He has his uh, uh, Golden Girls coffee mug. Uh, he is at the ready. The other book we're doing though today is the run of Catwoman by Genevieve Valentine with artists uh, Gary Brown and David Messina that came out during the DCU initiative um, which I had not really read before. I'd read the first couple of issues. And uh, for this, uh, John, you recommended, and I, I read, I think it was 13 issues. Um, yeah, it's a short, it's a short run. Well, that's par for the course in comics, though. These, yeah. you know, And that's, that's one of the cool things about these two stories. They're both crime stories. They're both set in Gotham. They both have a wide-ranging cast of characters with a lot of new characters and old familiar faces but they take place roughly 13 years apart in real time, mm -hmm. um, let alone DC continuity. There's a whole reboot in between there too. So it is fascinating to see the art style, the storytelling, the length of the creative runs at different eras of uh, comics in history, as it were. Yeah. Now there's, I, I, I will probably bring this up that later in the conversation, but I want to start the conversation off with at one of the New York Comic Cons 
um, the then head honcho, Dan DiDio. Um, yes, censor, no longer. No longer. I'll censor any thoughts about that. Um, was talking, was asked about Gotham Central. Um, and he had said, oh, well, you know, people would ask me, it's, you know, it's on all of these best of lists and it's all, it's really critically acclaimed. Why did we cancel it? And he's like, it simply just wasn't selling. Um, and that's one of those things that I think is really um, interesting and also difficult. Um, and one of the things that we tried to do here on Comics Corner is worry about the story and if the person is going to enjoy it rather than taking the time to think. Is this a long run? Is this was how how was this? I, I'd rather just I, I personally am one of those people in comics. I'd rather just read a good story. I am very happy stopping my purchase of comics if I'm not enjoying the story. I know that goes sort of against the collector's grain, but that's just me. Well, you know, it's fascinating. When I was doing a bit of research and and just kind of to jog my memory on a few things about Gotham Central, Gotham Central. Um, when did it actually run? I'm trying to remember here. I think it was. I think it was 2001. No, it was later. It was December 2002 through to April of 2006. So it had a it had a nice run, and it was never a bestseller the entire time. It never cracked the top 100 comics in the rankings ever for 37 issues across three and a half years. Um, but one of the things I was looking up was that there was evidence to support that it did very well in trade paperback formats and the rise of the trade paperback and the rise of binge culture, as it were in comics. Um, this was one of the earlier examples of a book that wasn't necessarily selling really well in monthly installments, but was gaining traction as it went on. And because it went so long, stores would keep pushing book one to try and get readers to catch up in single issues, which actually led to very strong trade sales and a stronger one. So it's, it's a really interesting case study, um, which I feel like is an appropriate term considering it is a procedural set in Gotham City. Um, and I, I think it actually plays in thematically very well to uh, the Catwoman run, which came at a very interesting time for DC Comics when it ran in 2015 as part of the DCU initiative, um, which was coming off of Convergence, which we'll get into a little bit, I'm sure, when it's, it's time to talk about it, um, and also where comics retailership and buying habits were, again, 13 years later. Yeah. So, However, I do want to just say... Um, for anyone, if you go into your local comic shop and the, the, this conversation is like, oh, that, that sounds like an interesting book, um, but I'm worried about, you don't need any prior comics None. knowledge to None. jump into this. Um, you know, the Catwoman has a very specific relation to what's going on in Batman at the time, but you don't need to know anything. Um, I do not read Batman on a regular basis and I knew enough that was going on. It's one of those things you can Wikipedia if you want it, if you really want to feel like you, you really want to know, but don't let the continuity aspect of it scare you away from reading these books. They're, they're both amazing. Um, so shall we jump into 
Gotham Central. We want to start. Sure, let's let's go chronologically in terms of uh, in terms of publication. <laughs> he was going to start with Catwoman, I think. Um, no, not at all. Not at all. I was I was I'm on the same page with you. Okay. I'm trying to figure out how many puns I can make during this whole conversation. So if somebody's let's... keeping score out there. Yeah, please do. Please do. Um, okay, so no lie, this is absolutely one of my favorite books. I love crime stories in general. I'm a huge fan of police procedurals. Um, if you want to watch an amazing police procedural, um, watch Linda Plant's Prime Suspect, starring Helen Mirren from- I've never seen that. <gasps> what is I wrong know. with you? I, well, I mean, we can get into that, but that's, <laughs> that's a different podcast. Um, <laughs> that's, no, it's actually, one of those... that's, we should do a podcast called What is Wrong With You? <laughs> That's just for our Patreon subscribers, though. That's just go. for the yeah. I, I'm, but yes, no. Um, I've I've it's on my list of of ones to check out. I need to see if it, where it's streaming right now. Uh, it's it's just streaming on Amazon. I own DVDs, so you can certainly borrow. It's uh, yes, yes. For those of you who are now mocking me out there, yes, I still own DVDs. I don't have a Blu-ray player. I don't understand Blu-ray technology. Um, uh, but getting back to Gotham Central, I love police procedurals. Um, and what I love about this book is it um, it does what I think Astro City does really, really well, which is humanize people around the heroes and have and deals with how would someone react if they were in this world where people could fly and punch each other through buildings and you had maniacs running around, um, uh, you know, with clown faces. Um, and it starts out, let me just say, uh, I'll say to you what someone said to me when I um, picked up the first, uh, the, the first time I picked up Euripides Medea, don't get too attached to anyone. Because <laughs> it starts out with a death, um, and it starts out with a death that you don't think is going to happen because it's someone who is really should be one of the main characters, and and that death ends up being a driving force. Really, I, I feel like it it doesn't it doesn't go away. It's not one of those things that happens in a very special episode, uh, you know, from the eighties, and then you never see the person again. It, it this has lots of reverberation it's it's one of the best cold opens i've ever experienced in comics um it's 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 you know and it starts with a bang but it starts off with a really one of the things that i was so impressed by going back and rereading these these first few story arcs is how tightly plotted everything is you know greg rucka and ed brubaker are two of the best crime writers in comics of the last 30, 40 years. I mean, you can go back probably for them. I mean, they're on the all-time, you know, all-star team list. Oh, so, yeah. and they're, and they're, they were great friends at the time. You know, I have no idea what the relationship is now today. And they're still brilliant crime writers, but they've both been working in the Batman universe. So they were from very familiar with the setting. They were very familiar with these characters. And one of the great things about the story is that, as you point out earlier, 
you need know no you need know nothing about what's happening in Batman's world. You don't even need to know who Batman is to make this uh, an effective bit of storytelling. The pacing is incredible, and every every bit of dialogue, every character has a purpose. Every event um, has a significance, and it's there is no fat on these stories whatsoever. It's just pure muscle all the way through. Now, I believe that when they wrote it, because it's it's about the major crime unit um, uh, police in in Gotham City, and when they wrote it, I believe they plotted kind of everything together, but each one took a specific shift because there's first shift, first shift, second shift. Um, yeah. So, so basically they spent about a year plotting out uh, the storylines. Um, they were going to release this earlier than they were, but then uh, just due to schedules, uh, it was mainly because of Michael Lark. So Michael Lark is the penciler um, and inker on the penciler on the book. So they, they had to wait for Lark's schedule to be free is what I've read. And so it, it left them about a year where they had this idea for the series. So they spent a year plotting out every major storyline. And then what they ended up doing is they would, as you say, they would divide up who wrote which shifts. And I believe it was um, Brubaker took the night shift and Rucka would take the day shift because you're following this major crimes unit, which was originally founded and run by Commissioner Gordon of the city. And it, it was formed to deal with supervillains and crimes related to supervillains and superheroes, specifically, almost like a task force within the Gotham City Police Department. And there's some great scenes about the hierarchy of different units in the police force between robbery, murder, and the MCU, as they call it. Not that MCU. It, this was the MCU before there was an MCU in film, uh, the major crimes unit. So what's fascinating is that this is not a book that follows one character. This is a, an ensemble, and every story arc gives different characters a chance to shine. For me, the, what's fascinating is that both of them being very steeped in crime literature, um, this has a lot of the Ed McBain 87th Precinct novels uh, mm-hmm. behind it. Are you familiar with those, John? Yes. Yes. So the 87th Precinct novels were started by a writer named Ed McBain. Ed McBain, who under the name Evan Hunter, wrote The Birds uh, screenplay for Hitchcock. And it ran from 1956 until I want to say about 2004 when McBain died. And it bucked the entire trend of crime fiction and anti-heroes and focused on a squad of detectives um, at the 87th precinct. And every book was from a different character's perspective or focused on a different character's case. And so it's a beautiful kind of love letter structurally, it feels like, to the evolution of that form of subgenre within crime fiction which is not something a lot of people realize when they read it. And I, I find fascinating. Yeah. And one of my favorite things about this, and this is a, a conversation we've had with Kelly um, when he's been a, a guest on the show on more than one occasion, um, is, you know, this, this overarching feeling that people have a difficult time relating to the DC characters because they're so 
godlike and and they're 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 um they're more aspirational than they are relational um but this book in particular what i love about this book is nobody's just gosh golly darn gee willikers great everybody has everybody is very flawed and very human um even characters that you see uh for example maggie sawyer you don't see her a ton but she she goes through it even batman when he comes in you know he says one batman's thing and then the he villain. turns around and he's a total dick um, what, what i love about it is batman's the villain of the story yeah you know that's the the story is so much for first of all uh representation of LGBTQ characters in here, of characters of color, which you were not seeing as much of, especially in DC or Marvel, for that matter, at the time. This touches on classism. This touches on societal issues. This touches on police corruption. This touches on police brutality. This touches on homophobia and racism within the police department, within the criminal underworld. There are so many relevant social themes going on. This is a brilliant time capsule in some ways, in a way that a lot of DC stories are not. DC, to your point, you know, DC are very aspirational, but they're they're much more like Greek myths. You know, they're mm -hmm. they're fables. Um, they're morality plays in a lot of way. Marvel, to your point, has always for me felt pedestrian, and that's not a knock. I'm I'm saying that they feel more of the moment that they are written in. You know, they're, they're tackling the, the issues of the day, they're reflecting the culture in which it's written in. Whereas DC is meant to be more evergreen, more timeless. And this is a total exception to that though. This feels like one of the probably at the time was maybe the most relevant book out there um, when looking at, at 2002 to 2006. Yeah, and for me, the thing that I love about it is when it touches on those social themes, um, and specifically, um, I have a feeling we're both going to have a lot to say about the storyline Half a Life, um, which we'll get to in a, in a couple minutes, I'm sure. But it is not specifically about those social themes. It is about solving a crime, or it, it's not. it's not about homophobia, racism, sexism, classism. It's just, this happens to come up in the context of solving a crime. Um, it, so it, it it's not meant great, to. It does what great storytelling is supposed to do. It is not preaching. It is not a message mm -hmm. book by any stretch of the imagination. What it is doing though, is it is within the story and with who these characters are, it does not shy away from touching upon those themes and those issues and through the story, exploring these issues, but in service to the story, not for the sake of trying to be relevant, not for the sake of making a statement, um, which sometimes is a narrative trap in a lot of ways when as a creator, you want to say something on a certain issue, mm -hmm. you know, you want to, to do it, Sometimes, though, you want to make the statement more than you want to tell a cohesive story or give a complete character arc. And you've got to find a way to do both. And this, this absolutely finds a way to do both at the same time.
Yeah. It's able to, to walk and chew bubble gum simultaneously, so to speak. So to speak. Um, so I, I am going to say, and I, this is probably not, um, and I'm, I'm going by my issues here out of the sure, first sure, sure. two storylines, which is the first one is the, um, Mr. Freeze and the second well, one. It's in the line of duty. Yes. Yes. In the line. Right, of so duty. the title, the title of the first story is in the line of duty. And that is also, I believe the title of my printing. So if you're going out there and you're going to be buying the collections, you want to look up Gotham Central Volume 1 in the line of duty. Yeah. And this is, a uh, again, don't be afraid to read it. The one recommendation that I would make is read the book in order. Um, yes. Because it, you know, there are a lot of things that you can read out of context. You can, certainly can read this out of context. I just think it's better. You know, it, it would kind there of be so like many dropping seeds. in. And, you know, there's so many seeds for future arcs littered throughout the first two stories that it feels like you're you're doing a disservice to yourself. And it's not like the quality changes, you know, dramatically worse in any way, shape or form from arc to arc yeah. to arc. Like start from the beginning and give yourself a treat. Yeah, it's it would be like dropping in in season three of Lost. You're like, you can catch up, but, you know, I get was, the whole I was going to I was going to say maybe it, it's like dropping in on season three of Breaking Bad, but um, but Lost is so continuity heavy. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I've never seen either Lost or Breaking Bad. So I tried watching the first episode you, of Lost. You can't, and I was drop, like, you can't drop in on Lost after the first episode. Like that's one, unfortunately, you have to be at the beginning. But they're justified. Actually, justified is is the best example I could give, you know. Start from the beginning because you're following a character's journey and it's a great journey, um, but you're not worried about the continuity so much if you were to drop it in the middle of a series, so to speak. Here's here's one I think we can both do. It's kind of like dropping into season three of The Good Place. There you go. Okay, I'm down for that. Sure. There you go. Sure. Well done. Um, not that the show needs a plug, but I just love that show. Um, Brilliant show. Yeah, so uh, In the Line of Duty... Um, is the first arc. Um, I actually really loved it. It starts out with two police officers at the end of their shift, following up on the kidnapping and ransom of a teenage girl um, and gets interrupted by Mr. Freeze. Um, the second arc, uh, which is called Motive, I believe, kind of goes back to that to the police officers going back to the original crime of the kidnapping um, and ransom and now murder of that of that girl. Um, and I actually love the second one because there's no superhero element. Eh, there's sort of a superhero element to it, but not really. Um, but it's just really good police work, which is very difficult to do in comics. It's super hard to do and, and you know, to, to kind of take it in order there. So what's fascinating from a narrative structure, right? You begin with two cops who are investigating this young girl's kidnapping and you think that that's what the case is going to be, right? They set up the expectation on page one that this is the case you're going to be following for this story arc. But then the encounter with a supervillain happens and the immediate stakes change. And so now the the case is no longer about the, the missing girl. The case is about the supervillain, which in and of itself is a commentary that they address at one point, 
which is that these freaks, as they like to call them, end up clouding the fact that there are regular people with real needs out there that they can't give the same kind of attention to because they're too busy chasing supervillains. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's really fascinating is it feels like in the line of duty, the first couple issues here, you are spent one, you're getting to know all the major characters. You're getting to know Captain Maggie Sawyer, which again, a female ca- police captain, a female power figure in a very male dominated um, setting of, of a police squad room something that really wasn't being done much in comics, right? Or society portrayed that way. Um, I think The Shield on television with CCH Pounder was really the the first one I can think of that really did that a couple years into this run. Um, But you you spend these first two issues understanding that one of the main struggles for a police squad is what do cops mean in Batman City? You know, and no one takes them seriously. No one believes that they could actually stop a supervillain. It's why they have the bat signal on their building. And that's one of the reasons why I say Batman is kind of the villain of the first issue because they are dealing with the death of one of their own, which is something they should be able to handle in house. But the questions constantly arise of, can they actually do it? Or do they have to call a vigilante in to do it for them? Yeah, And that and becomes a, one of the major struggles. Yeah. And there's some very short scenes between the surviving police officer of that first encounter with Mr. Freeze and Batman. And they're very short. Um, Pack a punch though. Yeah, really. Poignant's not the right word, Matthew, you're the writer. So I'm sure you'll come up with a better word than that. Um, But they are very, um, they're very pointed. Um, Pointed, I think that's a good word for it, yeah. um, There's actually that exchange that I love between the it's about the officer who died between his partner and one of the other cops where he says oh on the whiteboard you know this particular cop who died um used to write batman in there um like he was part of us and the new police commissioner commissioner a commissioner akins came in and said you know oh that's demoralizing and the cop said that's the point Right. That's the point of it. Um, the point is you shouldn't need Batman. Right. The cops should be enough. That's their job is to protect the city. The fact that they have to rely on Batman is a slap in the face to them and to their badges and to the 20 plus years some of these characters have put into the force. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah. Oh, but that second storyline. And that's and just the, and that's just that the first two it. issues. What you and I are talking about are just the first two issues that readers yep. get. And then the second story arc, to your point, suddenly they go back to where you were on page one of issue one, and you're dealing with this kidnapping and then murder. And now the cop who survived has a whole other personal stake in solving this case, because mm-hmm. this was the case that he and his partner were working on when his partner was killed, which yeah. goes into a very classic noir kind of anti-hero troop, you know, it's, it's the, it's the Maltese Falcon. My partner was killed and I'm supposed to do something about it. Right. I mean, you go all the way back to 1930s, you know, noir literature, which I know Greg Rucka literally has a master's degree in. He Mm -hmm. studied the history of the anti-hero and detective fiction. So it's very, you, you see, if you are a crime fan, if you are a noir fan, you see some very classic 
tropes being nodded to um, throughout the series. And it's just a joy as a genre reader to also pick up on those things. Yeah, I I feel like he redefines the anti-hero in a way with this, not because not because any of the police, I, you know, for the most part, the police officers who we follow are the good guys. Yeah, um, I, and while I don't necessarily has, see any of them as anti-heroes. They're heroes. They're just flawed, but they're not yes. anti-heroes. Yes, but I think that that probably is one of those redefinitions. I, you know, maybe it's it's how I look at it, but it's I think it's that redefinition of what is an antihero because an antihero was originally someone who was a good guy, air quotes, but was flawed. This kind of just says, well, no, people are flawed. Yeah, people are are not perfect. Um, and, well, there's also uh, a lot of sympathy in here at certain points for the criminals and for, you know, um, uh, there's a wonderful scene in the standalone issue right after these two stories where they have Commissioner Gordon in a flashback talking about how um, there are plenty of criminals out there who you know, have compulsions and they never, you know, were able to do it. And there are a bunch of criminals out there who commit crimes because they have no, with no sense of the consequences of their actions or the ramifications, use the word, the ramifications of their actions on how many lives they affect besides their own and how much suffering they actually cause. Mm -hmm. And like the mindful ignorance that he calls it is, is the greatest tragedy in the criminal element. And I always thought that was fascinating because it's another point where this series is willing to see everybody as human beings, not just the people you're following to solve the cases. Yeah. Um, I mean that I could get into a whole political discussion about demonization versus deification and how we look at things and in, and in that. That's all in the story though. That's all in the story. I, well, I'm going to kind of steer away from that and go to my the end point of my argument with that, it, which is when you demonize somebody or when you deify somebody, you rob them, in my opinion, of their greatest gift, which is their humanity. You know, people are not people in real life, as well as people in literature. And, you know, even if you look at anything from Greek mythology to present day, you know, the the heroes aren't heroes because they're perfect. The heroes are heroes because they're imperfect and they make mistakes and they screw up, but they get back up again and they keep trying and they keep trying and they keep trying, Um, you know, and you can go back to biblical verse, you know, the righteous man falls seven times, you know, which is not something that, you know, if you look at, you know, modern culture, you know, this, you know, we would never allow someone to screw up seven times, you know, we'd be like once, twice, maybe after that, it's kind of like, it's a whole other plate of potatoes. Uh. <laughs> well, one of the things too about this this um, series that I think is really interesting is that you can see major cases from uh, that had seeped into pop culture, that seeped into the mass media, being reflected in here. Um, one of the stories in book two of the current printing is called Soft Targets, and that is very, very, very much a um, reimagining of the DC sniper um, Mm -hmm. killings that were going on in 2002. 
And that book came out in 2003, basically, or like late 2003, early 2004, as the trials were going on and you were learning more and more about them. And so, again, it all goes back to Brubaker, Phillips and Lark all having a very great appreciation for finding ways to tell stories of the now in many respects um, through this lens of of kind of, uh, you know, a fictional city with, you know, fantastical elements to it, but still very grounded in something you would recognize in the same way that you do watching Law and Order. You know, like the majority of the cases on Law and Order are based on actual crimes. Um, and you feel that in this as well, which is also, again, power to them. It's it's a really strong choice. Yeah. Um, so... I so because it wasn't in my collections, let's talk a little bit about that single issue. Tell, tell me a little bit Well, do you want to go in order and, and get to Half a Life first? Um, or do you want to save Half a Life to the end? Let's save Half a Life. Let's do the single issue first and then go back okay. to Half a Life. Because so I have Stacey's a feeling issue. Half a Life is going to be a really long conversation. So Daydreams and Believers, it was issue 11 of the series written by... Um, at Brubaker, and this had a guest artist in there, which sometimes that happens in comics. Um, the artist is Brian Hurt, who also worked on a wonderful series called Sixth Gun, which is a Western zombie book written by Cullen Bunn that if you've never read, I would also recommend it to your listener. Um, oftentimes in comics, uh, sometimes just because of schedules, uh, artists get behind, colors get behind, the life happens. And so what you'll do is, you create what's called evergreen stories. And these are kind of standalone one-off tales, like one episode of television, so to speak. And you'll get a guest artist to come in and fill in for one issue um, to do it. And it's kind of like a, a break in between major arcs uh, to give the creative team time to catch up on their schedule. And this very much feels like that. Um, daydreams and Believers. Okay. Um, okay, shall we go into Half a Life? Oh, well, the, sorry. The, so the issue is um, one of the great things that they touch on in this is the hypocrisy of vigilantism in Gotham. And what it is, is you follow a woman named Stacy, who is technically a temp hired by the city to work at the major crimes unit. Stacy, however, her most uh, relevant job is that she is the person who turns on the bat signal. And she is the only person allowed to do that. And they give the reason, which is that officially, the Gotham City Police Department has never acknowledged the existence of Batman. He is still classified as an urban myth. And a case came up where it was proven the police turned on the bat signal, Batman catched the criminals and the criminals were let go on the technicality that the cops were using Batman as an agent, even though they have no official affiliation and Batman is regarded as a criminal element, which is therefore illegal. And so they get off. So the technicality through the bureaucracy is that only a civilian can turn on the bat signal. And so you follow kind of a day in the life of Stacy. And it's a really lovely kind of snapshot. She writes it as a kind of like she's writing a letter to someone back home that she hasn't talked to in a while about how she's daydreaming about a relationship with Batman. 
Um, and in the midst of it, though, you get caught up on where certain elements are of different characters and cases. So it's a really nice kind of, this was also written, it feels like as a catch up point. So for somebody who hadn't read Gotham Central yet and wanted to start with issue 12, you could read this issue 11 and feel like you knew enough to not have to worry about um, going back and rereading the first 10 issues if you could find them at that point. Yeah. Um, but it's a lovely little, it's a lovely little day in the life kind of breather in between arcs. Um, it's a tremendous primer too. If you're looking for a sample, like one issue before committing to the whole series, this is a great one for that as well. Okay. All right. Something else for me to buy. Um, you know, cause that's what I'll I give do. you my DC infinite login. You can just read it for free. Uh, no, that's all right. Really what I want to do is buy the Gotham Central Omnibus, but I, I it's out of so print pretty. now, so I think it's, it's like... It's so pretty. I remember selling a bunch expensive. of those at Forbidden Planet. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, such a good book. Well, now I know um, what to get you for Christmas. So, uh, well, when is your birthday? Uh, November. It's November. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You heard it here first, folks. We are going to start a, a little Amazon wishlist campaign. <laughs> gonna raise the funds to buy the <laughs> Gotham Central on the bus for John for his birthday in November. Done. Well and the, done. the 50th was in the middle of the the year of the pandemic. So you know couldn't really celebrate no, you didn't. that. No, it's not. You did not no one has had a birthday since the no pandemic birthday, started. Okay. You are still 49, my friend. That's good. That's actually good. we were gonna skip 50. You're gonna go from 49 to 51 and just I thought I was gonna go from 49 to 60. I was like that's no fine no no too. just 51. You're fine. Um, so let's talk about Half a Life. Okay, so this is this was actually the first Gotham Central omnibus I bought because I found it at a little used bookstore. Um, Do you remember little, the name of the bookstore? Um, Do you remember I, where? I don't. Was it was it back home in Boston or was it here in New no, York? No, 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 no. It was. It might have been in Philadelphia. Actually, it might have been in Boston. It was probably either in Boston or Philadelphia. And it was one of those ones where I was on vacation, either visiting my family or visiting my friend, my friends mm -hmm. in Philadelphia. And it was one of those things that I was like, oh, because at that point it was out of print. Gotcha. And I found it and I was like, oh, just buy it. Um, and then I couldn't find the first. And then I bought the rest of them. And then I couldn't find the first one. And that was a whole other plate of potatoes. Finally found it at Comic-Con. Um, but so this entire, um, storyline, um, and in my book, there's two stories from, um, from other Batman books, um, that focus on Renee Montoya. Um, but this one is in all Half Life? They, 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 give you they give you additional issues? Yeah. There's oh, one issue is that takes place during the Cataclysm. And then there's oh, another with Two Face, right? Where with he Two Face, her? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then there's the Happy Birthday, Renee Montoya, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, issue. Both both done by Greg Rucka. Um, So the whole series is written by Greg Rucka. This whole collection, ninety eight percent of this collection is art by Michael Lark, and it is. Um, it simplifies it to call it a coming out story because again, it's not really about coming out. It's not about homophobia. It deals with that, but it's in the context of a very twisted love story. 
um, where Two-Face, Harvey Dent has fallen in love with Renee Montoya and Two-Face takes it upon himself to uh, bring the two of them together. Um, and it is, um, it's one of those things, I, I, I kind of want to say heartbreaking because I feel like I tear up every time I read it. Um, Interesting. Just because it's one of those things where this is really the case of Harvey slash Two-Face does really terrible things, but not for terrible reasons. And he um, does them to terrible people, which is the other thing about this whole series, right? Is like, it's like innocent people don't die in this. Criminals, blackmailers, rapists die in this storyline, but not innocent people. Uh, and there is well, an interesting There's a couple of guards who are. Oh, uh, yeah, but I, I feel like the implication is they were on the take, so fuck them. But, uh, uh, <laughs> but yes, no, no, you're not wrong there. That's true. I forgot about the guards, as does most of society. Um, yeah, um, it does can also. Can you imagine introduce... what the health insurance premiums must be for like people who work security guards at Blackgate Prison and Arkham Asylum? Like um, the only reason you have those jobs is like the health insurance must be insane. Like the benefits yeah. oh, and sure. the perks. Are I'm just... sure. Um, and I, I do want to talk about that more when we get into soft targets because that is okay. Let's just have a a realsy conversation about this. Um, That's going to be a different episode, but yes, we should we should probably, do that. Yeah, We're already probably. working. This is going to be a two parter. I can feel it. Like, look <laughs> at the time, but um, but no, I mean the setup is essentially right. Just for for listeners out there, so the setup is uh, Renee Montoya, who is part of the day shift um, at MCU and is is considered one of the best detectives on there. Her character, uh, as a fun fact, originally debuts as part of Batman the Animated Series. Um, she was a bit character. And when I say a bit character, I mean she had maybe six lines out of 10 episodes uh, in that first season. Uh, but there was a growing fan popularity for the character. And in the comics, she really started to come on her own. And I mean, Harley Quinn is probably, obviously, the biggest breakout star to cross over from Batman the Animated Series into comics, you could maybe argue Renee Montoya is number two on that list. She's had a fantastic publishing history mm -hmm. um, for over 20 years at this point. And Renee basically gets uh, word that she's being sued by uh, someone who was arrested for rape easily. Everybody has first name. And um, now Lepari. he... Yeah, Lapari, And he gets... Uh, the Easley case, sorry, um, by a guy named Marty Lapari. And Lapari, after getting off on a technicality, is now suing Montoya for $10 million. Um, and so Internal Affairs is investigating her. And it turns out that Lapari is hiring PIs to track and get dirt on Renee Montoya. Um, and that is where you start is actually on the people spying her on her mm -hmm. as on the PI. And that's where the case really begins to unfold in all of its bloody, grisly fantasticness. And yeah. the secret that is found about Renee Montoya is John. That she is a 
she's a queer character. She's a lesbian. Yep. Um, and so a picture of her goes, one copy with gets her, sent to her. With her lover. With her lover. Her lover one Daria, copy gets sent to her parents. Yep. And one copy goes to the police station. I would like to take a minute and as the resident heterosexual on this program, Matthew. Wait, um, oh, me? I'm the resident heterosexual? Sure. Well, it's just the two of us. It's just the two of us. That's true. I'm not, so. Um, You've slept with more women than I have. That, okay, <laughs> wow. We're going to have to beat that one out. Um, yes, that's true, but it's a whole other story. Um, that conversation between Maggie Sawyer, who is also a lesbian, Yes. Um, and, sorry, I have a cop car going by outside my house. Um, How apropos. I know. Between Maggie Sawyer and Renee after that picture goes up is amazing. Um, I love that conversation because it it's does include brilliant. racism, homophobia, classism, religion, and not in a preachy way, but in this way that I think people often have where it's like, oh, this is my experience. So this must be your experience too. And when I say that, I, you know, I've had friends that I've talked to had a much more difficult time coming out than I did. My family is amazing. And um, pretty much we're all like, yeah, we know. Thanks. What do you want for dinner tonight? Okay, great. That conversation's done. Um, you know, I have friends who had a much more difficult time with it. Um, so, um, that, that conversation for me was one of the highlights in this story. Did, did it strike anything in you? It might be just my... Tremendously. No, 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 no. I think it's, it's a brilliant conversation. It's, it's one of those things where you, you know, it's, it's a conversation where it feels like you're trying to have a, a parallel established, right? Sawyer is... One, she's higher up the food chain in a position of power whilst also being out at that point in time and has been for some time. You even hear earlier on um, at one point, Sawyer talks about her lover, um, her female lover in to the squad room. Mm -hmm. And what's brilliant about it is you, you, I think you touch on it fantastically is that Sawyer is, is on some level trying to be a mentor and trying to say, look, you're, you're making mistakes right now with this. Like it, you can't put this back in, but she is also trying to on some level say, this was my experience learned from this. And Montoya is very clearly going, yes, but you're the boss. They can't talk shit on you outside this office, outside this office. They're all talking about this for me because I don't have your power. I'm not above them. Um, I can't fire them. You can. Your family's different. Montoya's family is religious and culturally do not accept this. Even her brother, who has known since they were 15 years old, still does not accept it. And there's a heartbreaking scene between them where he tries to convince Montoya to say to their parents that it's a mistake. It was a Photoshop deal and convince them it's not, going, it's not real. And the parents will be so happy and relieved. They will willfully believe that lie, even though it's not true anymore. And she stands up and says she's not going to do that, which is maybe the most empowering moment for me in the entire series. So the scene between Sawyer and Montoya is a 
fantastic kind of microcosm there because it is talking about the racism. It is talking about the classism. It's talking about the hierarchy within the police department. And it is dealing with the complexities that no one's story um, and circumstances are the same on the same issue. Yeah. And it's, it's, in, I love it because Maggie starts out the conversation with saying, you only get to do this once. Trust me yeah. when I tell you, you want to get it right. And it's interesting because Montoya says, you know, you know, Maggie says, oh, I've already done this. And Montoya's response is really because you're not a first generation American. You're not a Latina. You're not, um, you know, you don't have your parents asking you why you're 29 or 28 and not married and don't have children yet. And this is not Metropolis. This is not New York. This is, gone. This is not San yeah. Francisco. Um, and it's interesting because there's so much kind of packed into that, you know, one word balloon. You know, if this were a novel, that would be, you know, a three page Easily. thing about, you know, people are already looking at me because I'm a Dominican woman as, you know, I'm here not because I've earned it, but because, you know, there's some, there's some quota. But because there's no extra stuff in this, everybody brings their own experience. To me, I obviously reading it and going, oh yeah, I, I've been in a situation where I've been called a diversity hire. Um, not that I'm good at my job, you know, not any of that, just that's why I was at this particular job. And, um, you know, so I read all of these things that are into it that would have, were this a novel, were this a TV show, had to have been say, stated out loud. Um, I, you know, I give this a lot of credit. I, I mean, I give this book a lot of credit for a number of reasons, um, but I give this book credit for doing in superhero comics what, you know, is often rele relegated to quote unquote literary graphic novels like mm -hmm. Watchmen, Watchmen or Fun Home or things like that. You know, there's, there's nothing that's, that is, low class entertainment, you know, which is how no, people look to comics in the 30s and 40s. It's incredibly smart, sophisticated storytelling. And I think that one of the things we have not touched on yet in our nearly hour long discussion at this point is we've not talking about Michael Lark's artwork. Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the most brilliant things about this book is the storytelling from the artwork. And there's a very, very big difference between great storytelling and great art. Mm -hmm. And this is something that when we, when we get to what I feel like is going to end up being part two of our conversation, where we actually discuss Catwoman, that I'm, I'm very fascinated to talk about the comparisons of, this artwork is not flashy. This mm -hmm. artwork is not meant to wow you on the image in and of itself. It is, however, brilliant storytelling because yeah. there is a ton of dialogue there's a lot of talking scenes between characters. There's a lot of acting going on of people saying, you know, there's a lot of subtext to be played with in the facial expressions. And Michael Lark shines. And one of the reasons that I think this scene plays so well is the storytelling by Michael Lark is the peak of his game. The facial expressions, the body movements, 
um, the panel layouts are done in such a way to allow the dialogue to not slow you down in a way that sometimes happens when you want to be flashier with a lot of dialogue on the page, which again, is something I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about with Catwoman. So part of the, the reason is that you can have these very in-depth conversations. You can have a lot of things being said, but Michael Lark's panel layouts and the lettering in this book are so brilliantly executed that it never stops the story from moving forward. The yeah. conversation doesn't stop the story. It's continuing to propel everything forward through the art, through the panels. And I think it's, it's a great example of that. Yeah, it's all in service of the story. And Michael Lark is a brilliant, amazing artist and you know can do a lot to sort of show off. And here it's just all this sort of subtle, it, it, it just, it serves the story brilliantly. There's lots of panels and lots of comics where I'm like, oh, that's beautiful and that's gorgeous. And I would love to, you know, I could stare at that for hours. It's not necessarily great storytelling, but it's great art. Well, and I think that's that's one of the, the fantastic things that is understood in this series. The artwork is not meant for you to stop your reading experience and stare at it for hours. When you go back and you look at the storytelling, you actually could, but it is meant to move you forward the way that a great procedural is supposed to. You're not supposed to get bogged down in any one particular moment. You're on a ride, and that ride has a very specific pace of peaks and valleys. And this book and this storytelling by Lark in particular never forgets that wherein it is all in service to the story. It's not in service to the image. Like this is not supposed to be Michael Lark showing off and making you go, oh, I need to look at page, this double page splash and stop reading. He understands that you are supposed to get to the next page, to the next plot, to the next emotional beat to move everything forward because you're building every issue, which is truly unselfish. And I admire it in, in such an incredible way that this team works with that sort of cohesion. Yeah. Um, the scene that follows the, um, the Maggie Renee scene um, is the scene between Renee and her brother. And there's something about this that to me, the whole point of this, not the whole point, one of the most important points of this story is in here. And it's done in two, like two or three lines where he says to her, you know, if you tell them you're gay, all it'll do is hurt them. Why would you want to do that? And she says, maybe it's not about them. And it's really interesting because there is, there there's often in pop culture, and this is in no way, shape or form, no tea, no shade to anybody. There is this idea that coming out is about, you know, oh, well, I wanna have a great relationship with my parents or my best friend or my teammates or whatever. Coming out is a very personal thing. It is not for anyone else other than you. And people sort of, have this um, this thing about, oh, well, my parents took it badly and that's a terrible thing. But it 
sort of having this reminder that it's not about someone else's reaction. It's about you and your truth and you living your life. And it's not about anyone else. And that to me is kind of the closest, it's not preachy. It's kind of the closest thing that he gets to preachy. And it very much reflects the end sort of drama scene that takes place between Renee and Two-Face um, when they're in the hotel. Um, I, and I just, I just, this is one of those things that I just can't rave about enough. Um, no, you have to go, you need to read it and experience because even as much as we're, we're telling you, you, there's so much more. And I think that that scene with the brother, her, Renee's reactions in there doesn't happen without the Maggie conversation before it. Yeah. Um, from a narrative standpoint, it's incredibly strong there. And I think that conversation could have gone a very different way had it come first. Um, yeah. But it, it and, and your point, I think, is beautifully taken, John, and, and wonderfully made. And, you know, there is a, there is two, two schools about entitlement in American culture. Um, there is the entitlement of the younger generation, but there is an entitlement of the older generation, mm -hmm. wherein you are, you are supposed to have respect and reverence because they are older than you. They are your parents, therefore you have to respect them. Whereas it has evolved culturally wherein just because you're my parents doesn't mean you, I have to respect you. You still have to earn my respect, right? Mm -hmm. And you see that reflected in workplace. You know, your boss is your boss, but your boss could be a shitty boss, even though they're your boss, mm -hmm. you know, and you, you know, and it's, it's once as I infuriate you. So, um, <laughs> I love that. That's what you remember from the introduction. Okay. Oh, it's going to stay with it. You can say a thousand <laughs> nice things, but I only hear the one, the one not nice thing, but, um, because my insecurities, but it's, it's one of those things. And, you know, that sort of, that sort of moment of selfishness or entitlement, if you will, about coming out, it's supposed to be selfish. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be your personal entitlement. This is a, an incredibly important moment and experience, I imagine, in that, you know, it's you are owning who you are and it's it's you are doing so in a very vulnerable way. It's a very vulnerable experience from from my friends who've talked about it with me. And that vulnerability is yours and that is your moment and it's no one else's and it's not about you managing someone else's feelings. It's about you saying, I have feelings. This, yeah. is, this is about me and it needs to be about me and that's okay that it's about me. Um, and in therapy, it's something I've had to work on to be able to do sort of things like that. So it's in that way, it's a very relatable experience because sometimes in life and in culture, you are told you're not allowed to make uh, a very vulnerable moment about you. And, and in this case, you absolutely are, and you should, and it's a wonderful thing to do for yourself. Yeah, it's, um, and for anyone who's listening, um, as much as we have spoiled for you, there's a million things that we haven't. So um, much. And we've we haven't been... talked about the actual plot on any of these stories. We haven't gotten into all the supporting characters or the, the classism or the hierarchy in the police departments. Like we, we are literally scratching the surface as crazy as that may sound. Yeah. 
Um, I do want to leave this because this we is going to yes, end we... up being a two-parter. Absolutely. And I want to roll into the last of the Gotham Central so, portion, which okay. is soft targets. And I'm going to start out by saying something that's going to probably make you very mad. Me um, or fandoms in general? Who knows? Both. Everybody. Sure. The royal you. Um, this is actually the only Joker story that I've ever really enjoyed. <laughs> oh, this is one of the top five Joker stories of all time. Easily. Yeah. Easily. When people, when people ask me for their list, it's like, all right, you got killing joke. You know, it's, it's out there. You read it once in your lifetime, but this is soft targets is, is right up there with the best of them. It is also at the same time, the most, um, infuriating joker story i think because it's one of those things i probably shouldn't open with this but i'm gonna open with this for the sole reason that it's going to tie into a story later on that we do in april is the cruelest month Mm -hmm. um and i just want to say i cannot believe that there's not one police officer in gotham city who's like you know what F this, I am never going to get, um, you know, convicted if I shoot this guy. And there's so many opportunities in this story. I'm like, oh, for God's sake, just kill him. Just kill him. He's a homicidal maniac. I don't get it. Sorry. Oh, you're talking about fire in my heart, aren't you? I am. Yeah. Yes. No. Which is uh, phenomenal. I believe it's going to end end up being episode three of april's the cruelest month written by john himself i cannot wait for you all to hear it um i will say that because john will give himself enough credit for how good it is um but yeah i mean soft targets is about spree killing it is about a sniper who is killing city officials in real time this is a thrill ride like this is a there is no moment to take a breath in this story, which I love. It's very different than uh, in the line of duty motive or half of life, just literally in the way that it is paced and structured in that way. And you learn at the end of the first chapter that the spree killer who's killing all these officials via sniper rifle is the Joker. Um, and, And is literally showing that he can cripple the city in a matter of hours. Um, and it is, it is terrifying. And as I mentioned earlier, this is very much modeled after the DC sniper, uh, killings that were going on, um, that held Washington DC in fucking lockdown, basically. Um, sorry, Josh, you may need to beat me out. Um, but, uh, it's, it's terrifying and it's, and it's very much coming out at the time of the DC sniper case is still in the news with trials and everything. So you're playing off of very recent memories in this, but I agree. I think this is a, this is a brilliant Joker story. It is a brilliant example of the agent of chaos theory that became very popular just a few years later in the dark Knight film. And if you don't think Christopher Nolan hadn't read this story, read this and then go watch it. You absolutely see the philosophy of Heath Ledger's Joker in this story. there's there's a moment in this story that i love this is going to be full-on spoiler many moments i love um yes there are many moments in this story that i love um as i've said this is my my favorite joker story 
um, also the storyline after this is probably my favorite Harvey Bullock story. Um, but I haven't gotten that far in my reread yet. Damn it. It's okay. But we'll, I, we'll end it here. We can do a part two of Gotham Central someday. We could do a part two. I will say, so my nightly ritual, let's, once I sort of roll down, is I take a half an hour to reread comics before I go to bed. And then I take a half an hour to an hour to read novels before I, and books before I go to bed. And this I is one of those. I just started doing something like that actually I, recently. It's it's like, you know what? It's a great decompression. It's a great decompression. I, I you know, people, people are like, you know, I have friends my generation younger than, and the generations younger than me. And they're like, oh, I played video games for eight hours. I'm like, not me. I can't wait. Not that it's ever going to happen financially, but I can't wait to retire so I can sit in a chair and read books for eight hours. Can't wait. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, this is one of the, Gotham Central is one of the series that I often find myself rereading at night just because I'm like, you know, I just love the stories. I, I just want to read something really great. But anyway, circle back. The moment that I love in this is one of those moments, and I almost wish it was structured differently, but I understand why it was structured the way it was, is this sort of, well, Batman's the greatest detective in the universe. It's because literally the page after he goes to the commissioner and is like, this is why the Joker did this because the literally the page after there's a detective in the major crimes unit who's like, this is why he's doing this. And I know where he is. And it's, it's so fascinating because it's like, oh, Batman's the greatest detective in the world. Ah, Batman is not the greatest detective in the DC universe. It, Lois Lane is, we all know that. But I love the fact that this- Greg Rucka would uh, agree with you. I'm sorry. Greg Rocco would agree with you. I oh, Lois. Oh God. I could talk about Lois for hours. Um, we'll do another podcast on Lois. Okay. We've, love... we've now set up four additional episodes for ourselves. By the I way. know. Well, did you read the Greg Rocco, Lois Lane, Maxi, the 12 issue? I've not finished it. No. Oh my God. What is I'm gonna, wrong I'm with just, you? I'm going to binge the whole thing basically one day. It's, it's so good. It was literally the thing that I, travel during the beginning days of, of lockdown like when yeah. things started opening back up again I went to the comic store just so I could buy these issues because it, it's it, oh it blows my mind anyway that's a separate story um but I love the fact that it this this story does not isolate Batman as the greatest um it it really does make it gives credit where credit is due to other people. Um, and that's one of those things that I, I, I just love. It's, and it's literally back-to-back -back pages where they both come to the same conclusion and why. Um, and it just, um, although Go it does. It. Yeah. I mean, let's look at the end of the day, you've heard us talk for over an hour now about this series. We cannot give it any higher marks. We cannot give it any higher recommendations. Please, please, please do yourself this favor. If you want a phenomenal detective story, a great crime story, um, if you want an edge to your superheroes, or if you don't give a shit about superheroes, it doesn't matter. This is one of those books that everyone should read once in their lives, the series. Yeah. Um, 
I would highly, 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 I can't, I really can't recommend these enough. I'm very glad that we got to talk about them. I think I've recommended these several times to other people for Comics Corner. And it's just one of those books that we haven't gotten to yet because there's been something else that has struck your fancy. Um, but I just absolutely love this book. Um, so um, since Matthew and I have both read this, I don't actually have to ask the question, did I make a good recommendation? So that is a good thing. Since this was my recommendation. That's, that's true. true. Um, that is true. Um, and it is something that so we've talked about for years and years and years. So, so what, is, what is another crime story um, in comics that you think we should recommend to people out there in addition? Oh gosh, there's so many. Um, Ed to, look, wait, to wrap it up, let's give one additional rec. Oh, God, don't make me give just one. All right, if you're going to make me give just one, you go first while I roll. Fine, roll I'm going one. to say Comeback by Ed Brisson and um, uh, Adam uh, and Michael Walsh. It is a phenomenal uh, time travel noir. Um, it is one book, six issues, collected series. Uh, I think it is, for you crime fans out there, read Gotham Central. And then if you want to break, um, that is a wonderful, what we would call standalone uh graphic novels to read in addition. So that's a more of a sci-fi noir. Okay, John, give me one. Oh God, all right. I'm gonna go for an offbeat choice. Do which it. is Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, The Big Lie by Anthony I Del Cole. knew it, I knew it. Um, so- I'm gonna text Anthony Del Cole right after this. Okay, good. Um, so I grew up, Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys is really how I learned to read. Nancy Drew more than the Hardy Boys is really how I learned to read. Um, and um, <laughs> when we were cleaning out my dad's house, um, it literally pained me to have to box up the, I don't know, there had to have been 50 to 60 Nancy Drews there. Um, and I brought a bunch back home with me. I brought like some of the really old, like 30s and 40s ones back, back home with me um, because I couldn't bear to get rid of them. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a great crime story. Um, it involves all of the characters from that that syndicate. Um, I just think it's really, really well done. Um, and um, I, I would recommend it. Um, not my favorite publisher for personal reasons, but I will uh, say- Understood. Yeah. yeah. But I will say- um, Not mine either for other pub, for, for personal reasons as well. Yeah. Um, but I will say, I think Anthony, who I do love and I've gotten to meet, is a wonderful guy, sweet, sweet man. Um, has... And a supporter of April's The Cruelest Month. He pledged to the Kickstarter. Yay! So thank um, you, Anthony, but, if you're listening. Yeah, but he, I think he knocks it out of the park. Um, it, it manages to take the old-fashioned, the sort of classic, quote-unquote classic, and mix it with a very new, fascinating sensibility um, and now that there's both a Nancy Drew series on CW and a Hardy Boys series on Hulu, um, yeah, I, I, I think this is, uh, this is not your mommy's Nancy Drew. Thanks for listening to this episode of John's Comic Corner. You can find us on all social media at The Cruelest Month Podcast. To support us on Patreon, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash the superhero podcast. Thanks for listening.